Well, good morning. Good morning. Let's pray. Let's pray to our God. Father, we thank you for your Sabbath. We thank you, Father, for giving us six days in which to labor so that we would uh, be used up to come here on our need to be restored, to be refreshed, to be renewed. We thank you for uh, the church. We thank you, Father, for this place to come together before you. We thank you for this body. We thank you, Father, that Christ is the head of this church. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word now, that you would teach us more about him, about our relationship with him, that you would heal us, give us hope, comfort us, and convict us in in exactly the way each of us needs, Father. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So, today the sermon is called Jesus Slays Our Isolation. That's a delicious title. I just wanted to say it out loud. So, Jesus Slays Our Isolation. Now, we are going to just continue from last week. Last week we covered the fact that we live in a ghetto. We live in a ghetto of self, in a ghetto of the family, in a ghetto of the church. Now, isolation, a lack of resources, and ill treatment. That's how we define a ghetto. A ghetto is an inward-facing, defensive community of under-resourced seclusion. That that sounds like uh, my criminology days there. That's a big definition. A ghetto is an inward-facing, defensive community of under-resourced seclusion. Now, do you feel isolated? Do you feel like you lack the resources to, to effectively do the things called as the church to do? Do you feel like ill-treatment, sin, essentially, has isolated you, has made you withdrawn, withdraw from people, other people withdraw from you? I, I think we all experience these things. I think we're all experiencing them in varying degrees together. I think it's a very... I think our isolation is a very unifying idea. It's keeping us from having deeper relationships with one another and the community around our little church here. And so, as I said last week, it's time to get out of the ghetto. Now, last week you may have been wondering, um, after this call to get out of the ghetto, how do we get out of the ghetto? Uh, I couldn't do all five sermons in one week, so there, there was a bit of a question mark there at the end. So this week I'm going to begin to answer that question. How do we get out of the ghetto? Uh, if it's bad that we're in one, and here we are, how did we get here, and therefore, how did we get out? Now, ministry within this church, ministry in the city, in where we live, is hard. Ghettos are easier to build than the kingdom of God. That's why I'm going to, I think we should all sympathize with one another. Ghettos are, in fact, easier to build than the kingdom of God. We build walls around our ghettos, and the world is all too eager and happy to help us. The cost of living in this area is big. The geographical distance separating us is big. Other people's sins seem big. Our own inadequacies and sins are themselves big. The population opposed to our God and his kingdom in this area are big. There be giants in the land. So things have not changed much, apparently, since Deuteronomy. (laughs) There's giants in the land. And some of us, as God's people always have, would rather hunker down, uh, dig trenches and walls, and make a defensive position, which is what a ghetto is. The urge and temptation to dig in and defend ourselves with walls that are high and hard to climb is very real. But the thing that we have to understand is that the God of our salvation is, in fact, bigger. He's bigger than everything that I've mentioned. Jesus is bigger than the distance of land that separates us. Jesus is bigger than your need for resources. Jesus is bigger than the sins of others. Jesus is bigger than the mess that your house is in. Jesus is bigger than your own inadequacies. Jesus is bigger than your fears. Jesus 
is bigger than your isolation. You are called to bear fruit. You are equipped to bear fruit. Armed with the promises of God, no giant can stand against us. And this is what we're going to rally around now. Just like David, we're going to go down to the river of living water and we're going to get five smooth stones. Remember that story? Now, did you ever think, David, when he's going to go up against the giant, why five? Why does he get five smooth stones? He goes and he throws one stone and Goliath falls. One was all he needed. But he went down and armed himself with five. And I think this just proves my point. God over-equips us for our mission. That's the thing we need to wrap our hearts around. We think, oh, we can't possibly do that. We can't possibly overcome these things. And, and Jesus loads us up, arms us very well, more than we even need, because then when David goes to slay the giant, all he needs is the one stone. So what we need to realize is that we are, in fact, overly equipped to kill the giants, keeping us under chaos. We are capable to tear down strongholds. The gates of hell and hell-bound sinners cannot stand before the army of faith, the hosts of heaven. I like where we live. 80% of the people are not believers. I like the odds. It's like standing on the edge of the Red Sea when you're hearing an army coming from behind you. It's exactly like that. Now, last week, the theme of this whole message, this whole five-week series I'm doing, was John 15:16. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. We're going to come back to that again and again. The portion that we're going to look at today, the equipping that we're going to look at today, is specifically found in Ephesians 2, 18 through 19. For through Jesus, we both, you and I, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The first giant forcing us to hunker down in our ghettos is the giant of isolation. We were all made for relationships. We need to understand that. You were made for a relationship. You were not made so that you could just walk in the cool of the day in the garden with just God all by yourselves. Okay, That is a benefit of living in this kingdom. Don't get me wrong. But that's not what you were made to do, actually. You were made to live in relationship to other human beings. You were made for relationships. Jesus, then, the next thing we have to understand is not only were you made for relationships, Jesus himself fulfills every possible relationship need that you have. You name the relationship you need, I will show from Scripture how Jesus fulfills it. You need to know how to to fulfill your end of a particular relationship, I will show you from Scripture how Jesus shows you how to do it. We're going to get into this now. What, What relationship do you need? What relationship do you need restored? What relationship do you need to learn how to do better? Marriage? Doctoring? Ministering? Servants, masters, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do the whole list now because it's really long. I'm going to read it here in a few minutes. Okay, We were made for relationships. So why are we isolated? That's what we have to address. And in that isolation, Jesus comes, like the 82nd Airborne, Okay, he comes in and he parachutes down where we are in our little ghetto and he fulfills every relationship need we, we have, fills us up so that we can go into the world and and have meaningful relationships with people, the ones we were meant, made to have. All right. That sounds like a big plan. That sounds like a lot to cover for one day. And it is. So 
I'm going to say this. Buckle up. Just buckle up. Because it's going to be a long, fun, exciting, scripture-filled ride right here. First and foremost, we need to understand that we were made for relationships. Genesis 1, 26-27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What's funny is I didn't even realize before all the times I've actually taught this like six times now, this particular material, is he actually describes the relationship he has with the livestock and the animals. So that just proves my point. I'm going to mark that down next time I'm going to use that. Okay. Because, I mean, he was made to have a relationship with everything that was already created. That's kind of stunning, isn't it? So he didn't just make man so man can wander around in a garden by himself. He made man so that man could have a relationship with everything that already existed. But on top of that, to be an image bearer, we've heard that plenty of times, you're an image bearer. The image is a group of people. The image is not one man. We think we're image bearers just alone by ourselves. And in a sense, we are, but we're incomplete without other people. In order to make a true image of God, he had to make more than one person. Why is that? Well, because we're Trinitarians. We understand that the community of God is three persons. It's multiple persons in one community. So in order to create an image of that, what do you need? You need multiple people. This is why it says in Genesis 2.18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Why? Because he's unfinished. It's not an image of God. Man goes looking amongst the animals, doesn't find one that looks just like him, which we're going to cover. This is what friendship is, finding someone just like you. Adam goes amongst the animals, and he has a relationship with all of them, but he doesn't find one just like him. He's incomplete. It's not good. Man was made for relationship with other men. A relationship with God and a relationship with fellow men. Okay, When you're created, you're created to be in relationship with God. You're created to be in relationship with other people. Relationships cannot be avoided. Now, did you know that most of the relationships you have, you did not choose to be in? Very, very, very few of the relationships that you have that fill your days, you did not choose to make. A couple of examples. I was born into a family that already had several kids. Now, I would, uh, whether I would like different siblings or not, which I wouldn't, I'm just saying. <laughs> whether I would or not, there they are. Aaron Gibbs is my cousin because I was born into this family. I would have not known him probably unless I had been related to him. But, right, I have a relationship with this man named Aaron Gibbs simply because I was born into this family. My dad is my dad because I was born. I didn't decide that relationship. It was there. Now, it's not limited to family. Actually, during the friendship class, Becky pointed out, this is good, that the only familial relationship you choose to have is your spouse. It's a good point. It's the only one where you go out and find somebody. But all the others, they're just there. But when I went and um, had an interview at King County District Court, as soon as they said, yes, we'll take you, I immediately had a relationship with 18 people I'd never met before. All the other clerks I work with. Right? They bring you in, they introduce you to everyone. These are now co-workers. I did not choose any of them. Whether I would choose them or not is not the question. The point is they were, they were there when I, when I got there. 
I, 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 uh, my wife and I found this house eight years ago, nine years ago. I'm not sure. Uh, we drove up to it and, and, and we said, we'll take it. We, we had the cash. We'll, we'll take this, take this house. Immediately, everyone on either side is my neighbor. I can't, I can't do any about, anything about that. There they are. This is how relationships work. You have them. Why? Because you were made to have them. Because as a community, as a group of people, that's the image of God. Now, what's the nature of that relationship? Well, what's the three persons of the Trinity like? Disgruntled? Isolated? Under-resourced? No, I don't think so. Right? You're created to have this relationship. And the nature of the relationship should be one where there's sacrifice and selflessness and service and love and camaraderie. And that's what you should bring to all your relationships. The family members you have, the neighbors you have, the coworkers you have. If you're going to image that relationship, you're not doing it if you're living with angst with people, if you're living at odds with people. Someone recently, we were talking about, um, if I found out I was terminally ill, would, there's actually a sibling I'm not necessarily sure I'd call. That's actually something I should probably work on, right? Because I'm not imaging God. There that relationship is, and I wouldn't even talk to them if I thought I was dying of cancer in six months. I mean, I would say that's a pretty big problem, right? And I, mostly, like always, I say things to be funny, because uh, that, that was a shocking thing to say at the time. But then when I stopped and thought about it, I was like, no, nah, that might actually be true. And so the question is, am I imaging God in that relationship? No, I'm not. And we are not. When, that, when that's how we're deciding to live. If you have a neighbor, if you have a coworker, if you have a sibling, if you have a spouse, a child, you're not imaging God in that relationship if, if you're not imitating their, their love, their selflessness, their sacrifice, etc. Now, why isn't it good that Adam, why isn't it, I'm sorry, hold on, why is it bad that Adam is alone? What is the nature, why, why do you need relationships? Well, let's just go through a few verses in the Bible and let's see what relationships do for people. Acts 8, 30-31. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And very humbly, the man says, no. How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. You're not as wise as you think you are. You don't know everything that you think you think you know. You're not as powerful as you think you are. We, we need people in this instance who are wiser than us, who understand things better than we do, who can teach them to us. This is exactly what relationships are for. Right? If this man were to simply sit there staring at the book of Isaiah and nobody explains it to him, I also think it's funny because it, it totally blows out of water the idea that me and the Holy Spirit can just sit here together and figure it all out ourselves. Now, the Spirit, we're going to talk about this in a moment, does in fact illuminate your mind while you're reading Scripture. But in this case, why would God put this in here unless in, better to understand the scriptures we needed other people? James 5.16 Therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Hmm. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. But I thought I prayed in Jesus' name via the Spirit to God the Father and that was it. I thought that was, that was what prayer was. It's like the singular thing I do. You're telling me that enough righteousness of Christ is rubbed off on righteous men that if they prayed for me, there's power in it. 
That's what it says. So we need people to confess our sins to. We need people to pray for us. Otherwise, you may not be healed. We think we can just do it all by ourselves. We think it's a better option because we've gotten into relationships with people and they didn't go very well. And so what we do is we get into our ghetto and we think all I need is Jesus and the Spirit and the Father, whatever, however that works, and me all by myself. Walking in the cool of the day. Sounds nice. You know, in that, in that there's no sinners. If it's just me and God, there's no sinners in that relationship. That's what, that's what we think. Ecclesiastes 4.12, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Okay, if you're walking in a dark alley, you're more likely to be mugged if you're by yourself. If there's three of you, you're less likely to get mugged. That's simple interpretation, but there it is. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Proverbs 27.6. Iron sharpens iron. Proverbs 27.17. Matthew 18.20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Because that's what the image of God is. People together. That he said, there I am. Why? Because people were made to live in relationship with one another because that's what the image of God is. Now, I think we've always misunderstood what this verse actually means. You mean God's not with me until I get another person? No. But if you want to demonstrate to the world, you want to put God on display, get a group of people together. Now, you're either telling lies about God or you're telling the truth, depending on how those, that relationship is working. But where two or three are, that's where God is. That's him there. You look out in nature and you see the diversity. You see the unity. You're without excuse about God. But when you see a group of people living together, you get a little closer to what God actually is. The Trinitarian God. Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, and here's my favorite, Matthew 7. If you're going to deal with somebody's speck, you've got to deal with your log. I love that. Because the speck is what? This big? Look, look at that guy's little... And then you've got, a, you've got a tree in your eye. Now, if I live isolated from everyone, there the tree grows like a forest. Looks more like Northern California. And, and you never... Right? I don't want to deal with anybody's speck. That, that seems like too much work. Right? I, I get bruised when I get around people. They're sinners. But then you're walking around with a forest in your face. <laughs> no, in order... To deal with the stuff in your own eye, you got to have a relationship with people. This is crucial to understand. But I thought having friends and having relationships was so we could watch like Seahawks games together and stuff. Well, yeah, you can do that. That's fine. I'm, I'm the last person to knock a Seahawks game with friends. But that's not really all that it's about. And when it does become all about that, you wake up and you're in the ghetto. Because nobody's dealing with anything. I'm not dealing with your tiny speck. Think of how much better your life would be without it. And I'm certainly not dealing with the forest, the redwoods. Now, I said it on other occasions. Uh, this is one I bring up commonly, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, notice there, it's a tree like I was talking about last week. But do apple trees ever grow apples for themselves? The very nature of a fruit tree is so it grows something for others, for the community. Right, there's these apple trees by work, and you know who eats the apples? I tried it. They're gross. But there was a squirrel eating one and a bird eating one. I'm sure there's worms that eat them. That's always how it is in cartoons, right? The fruit is for the community around the tree, not the tree. So God is interested in producing fruit in you. Why? 
So you all alone can be just like God? Well, that's, that's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Through the Spirit, he produces fruit in you because fruit is tasty. Fruit is refreshing. Fruit is good. Fruit is for other people. No apple tree ever needed to eat an apple. But think how much better the life of the squirrel is for having had the apple. Now, this, all of this is to say God works through the ministry of people. He uses means, right? We come here, we gather around this table. He's feeding us, and so he gives us physical means to see and taste and touch. And what it represents is this grace that's actually going down inside of us and feeding our souls. He uses means. He uses tactile things to make us more like him. This is why in baptism we don't just do one of these and say, you're in. right? We actually put water on a person because the water is teaching us something. He works through things. And in our lives, sanctification, he works through people. Uh, C.S. Lewis said it, the, the Next to the Holy Sacrament itself, the holiest thing you encounter in this world is another person. It's your neighbor. right? Love God. Love your neighbor. The next holiest thing to God himself is your neighbor. Because that person is either going, as C.S. Lewis says, to become a demon in hell or a something that if you saw now you would fall down and worship it in heaven. The person next to you is the holiest thing that you're going to come in contact with besides God's sacraments themselves. Think about that. Yes, these people sitting around you, that neighbor. I have several neighbors. Usually, the first thing that comes to my mind, some of you have met my neighbors, is not holiness. <laughs> right? Not deification. But that's exactly why. Because that when I see them, that's not what I think. So who's getting worked on? Who's really getting worked on? Through the neighbor. Our need of Jesus is what binds us all together. Now, how many of you have sinned? This time I am going to actually do a show of hands. We're going to test your theology. Okay, good. There you go. Everyone, real nervous, put it up. How many of you have been forgiven? Okay. How many of you were apart from God at some point in your life, even if you don't remember it because you were a baby? How many of you now are in the body of Christ? Okay. Right? We have an awful lot in common, don't we? But but you like baseball, and I like basketball. We don't really have that much in common. <laughs> At least it's sports. We have a ton in common. And friendship is based on commonality. right? God makes an image like himself. He creates something that has commonality with him. And C.S. Lewis said uh, this. This is what he said in The Four Loves, I think. Nothing I suspect is more astonishing in any man's life than the discovery that there do exist people very, very like himself. I, I remember there was a friend in high school, and we were at some assembly or something, and something goofy happened. And I was, I'm still well known for laughing at things that are, I don't know, most people don't think. But this guy was laughing too, and he's still my friend. That was 20 years ago. Because we, we both think the most ridiculous things are funny. It's hilarious. But isn't that, isn't that something? I mean, C.S. Lewis was, he, he had a friend, a neighbor, he didn't want to go visit. He was like nine. And, and so his parents forced him to go do it. I'm sure you kids have had to do that, play dates with people you don't know. And C.S. Lewis walks into this boy's room, and there's the same book he's reading. And, and that's when he said this. Actually, this quote's from Surprised by Joy. Just telling that story, I figured out where it was from. And, and C.S. Lewis was like, oh, somebody just like me? Now, we think we don't have things in common with one another. 
right? I, I, we look for differences. That's, we go for isolation because we're like, well, sure, uh, friendship is based on commonality, but I don't really have anything in common with these people because we either have way too low a view of ourselves or we have way too high a view of ourselves or we don't think about people at all. But as I said, have you sinned? Have you received grace? Are you sitting here staring up at a wall, as Scott Snyder liked to put it, singing songs to someone you can't see? You're, you're weird people. And you have that weirdness in common. And that seems like enough to me. That seems like quite a bit. Now, the astonishing fact isn't only that we come and find someone just like us, people who laugh at the same silly things, people who read the same books, people who have been saved from the same habitual sins. But we open the scriptures and what we find is a God who's just like us. Because Christ came in the flesh. Christ ate. Christ drank. Christ got sick. Christ had friends. Christ got stabbed in the back. Christ did all the things that you were doing. And the God of the universe, you come upon him and you say, look, here's one who's just like me. Well, wait a minute. Are you saying I'm a God? No, because things can be similar and still different at the same time. That's why I mean, the Trinity is the Trinity and we have a diverse world. But you come upon Christ and you find someone who's just like you. Now, he calls himself the door. Jesus says, I am the door. The door to what? Well, I like to say, I stole this from Fred Sanders in his book, The Things of God for Everyday Life. Jesus is the door to the happy land of the Trinity. And I say that, it's like a theme park. Like imagine the Trinity is a theme park. You go in here and there's all kinds of delightful things. But you go through the door of Christ and you find a God who is your father, a God who's your brother, your helper, your friend, your Lord, your spouse, your servant, your master, your king, your teacher, your pastor, your provider, your protector, and the head of a growing and healthy body. He's the temple in which we live. That's a list, isn't it? Now, I find, you know, the age-old thing, some of us have a hard time with God as a father, because we have bad fathers. Some of us, actually, this is my, I, I have a hard time with thinking of him this way because I had a good father. It's like, why do I need a father? I've got a dad. I think there's so much to this in our ministry to the world because people's lives are full of broken and tattered relationships. What do you need? Do you need a parent? Do you need a spouse? Do you need a sibling? Do you need a friend? Do you need a doctor? Now, would you like to be a better servant? Would you like to be a better master? Where do we turn for all of our relationship needs? Sounds like a cheesy dating service. But the reality is, from the smallest to the biggest kind of relationship you can have, servant to a Lord, Jesus fulfills all of these relationships. God is a community in which the three persons need one another to exist. The Father is the Father because he has a Son. The Son is a Son because he has a Father. This is something, again, about our relationship to one another. This is why they talk about in the body of Christ, you're not, your gifts come and you're not really a complete person until you're living in the body of Christ. I would even go so far as to say that. Unless you're a believer in Jesus and in his body, you're not, you haven't really yet fully become a person in one sense. You're a human, but you're not a person. Your identity is defined by the people sitting around you. Because, as I said last week, right, I'm just an ear without a head. I'm a foot that's just sitting there. That's gross. 
just imagine a foot on stage here, without a leg, that's disgusting. Right? You're incomplete apart from the body of God. And, and this is the Trinity shows forth, right? What would, the, what would the Father be without the Son? Vice versa. Now, what I'm hoping to, for all of us to see is that this shatters the ghetto. Forget the ghetto. Isolated. How can you ever be alone? You're never alone. The triune God is every possible relationship you could possibly need and shows you how to be in any kind of relationship that you need. You're sitting there and you think, you know, I've been disappointed by siblings. I've been, my doctor let me down. My friend let me down. I had this friend. We were so close. They moved off. I've got this teacher. He's not great. And in and, and every one of those problems, you turn to Christ. All of them. He's your God. He's your father. He's your brother. He's your helper. He's your doctor. What do you need? He's here for you. It's not good that man was alone. And so what he gave us are physical means to show us the, the spiritual truth. He gave us other people so that we could see that we need other people. And fundamentally underneath it all, what supports the whole thing is relationship in its multifaceted way with God himself. I learn something about him when I see a good father and a good son. Vice versa, I learn how to be a good father by, by watching what he does. So I'm not alone. And, and, and learning all of these things about relationships, I don't want to remain alone. I have him, so I'm full. But now what it does is it, it gets me going. It gets me energized. It gets me wanting to go out into the world. And for me, this is how I... This is how I sustain all of the things that I do. I got five kids. I got a pregnant wife. Someone just put everything that I have going in a list to me the other day. And once I looked at it, I wanted to lie down. <laughs> and, and, but it's not me. Um, I mean, mostly what I'm saying here is something I've come to realize. People let me down all the time. They let us all down all the time. And if that were the only thing to be said about it, why would I ever leave my house? Right? This is why we get in ghettos. But if we're looking to the one who never falters, who never fails us, who never lets us down, who fulfills everything that we need, how can we, how can we stay at home? Now, we're going to go over a few specific relationships. There are, in fact, far too many for me to do uh, in one day. So we're going to just look at a few key ones. John 15, 11 through 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Now, what's remarkable about this is um, I think you can make an argument that, you know, how do we sum up God in one relationship? I think a lot of people try to do that. And that makes sense, right? What is he fundamentally? I actually think that's impossible to do in one sense, in many senses. Right? If we just think about him as Lord, what does that leave out? Everything else. If we just think about him as our homeboy, which is the thing now, Jesus is my homeboy, um, what, what does that leave out? 
Uh, if we just think of him as this effeminate, modern, metrosexual husband, what does that do to us? Right? We see these sins all over the place. So I'm about to say something profound, but I, I, I want you to remember just to, to balance it out in your mind. I could stand here and I could make this argument for him being our Lord. I could make this argument for him being our Savior. But, but the entire salvific story is summed up in friendship. Now, I've never thought of friendship that way before. The greatest love that you can demonstrate is dying for friends. Now, I clearly don't understand friendship because I thought they were the ones who brought the chips I like to the party that I'm having, right? A good friend is the one who knows what kind of beer I drink and keeps it in their house. And, and I've actually made this mistake myself. I used to keep liquor I knew people liked in my house for them. And that's, that's great. That, that gets expensive. But on another, that's not really what friendship is, is it? And if you stop for a moment, a husband's told to lay his life down for his wife like the best friend that she's ever had. Friendship is at the center of our relationship with God. Now, I, again, I can make the argument that a lot of things are at the... But what do you need? What does the world need? I think it's this way because no matter what, all paths lead to Jesus. Right? We're, we're, we're broken. We have broken relationships and we, we seek salvation and we seek healing and whatever road we come by it gets us to the same place but this one i think is is profound for us at this moment as a church at the heart of the story of the gospel is friendship few things can be more unnatural or incomprehensible to an unbelieving imagination than the willingness of the god who created the universe out of nothing to become a friend of mortals whose lives are mere breath Jesus standing at Lazarus' tomb. What's the problem, Jesus? It's just one guy. There are others. In fact, probably in that town, there are some people dying right now. But why would he come and love one man like that? Why would he be that affected by his death? He calls him my friend, my friend Lazarus. So when he says to us, if you obey me, you are my friend. If I've saved you, you're my friend. That, that's huge implications for our lives. The Bible, um, now I'm going to back up for a moment. Okay, friend, that's, that's, um, that's interesting. What is a friend? Again, we have all kinds of weird, there's a show called Friends. Uh, most of the time, they don't actually seem like friends in that show. That horrible, horrible show. That was good for a couple of seasons. But if you, like, this is how the world works. You watch that show and you're like, this is awful. If this is what friendship is, I'm going to build a ghetto and I'm going to never leave it. Right? It's very hard for us to define what friendship is. But the Bible is, of course, where we go. And the Bible uses two consistent images as a representation of what friendship is. The first is the knitting together of souls. This is different than liking the same sports team. Because often I feel like I have one soul with somebody who really loves the Seahawks. But, but it, it means more than that here, as we're going to see. Deuteronomy provides the earliest mention of this category of a friend who is as your own soul. A friend who has, is your own soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm. Interesting. A companion of one's inmost thoughts and feelings resulting in an intense emotional attachment. 
It's more than just looking at the same goofy joke and laughing. It, it can start there, but that's not where it ought to end. Friendship, real friendship. It is well illustrated by Jonathan and David's friendship. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. First Samuel 18.1 He loved his neighbor as himself. Characteristic expressions of this union of hearts are an affectionate embrace or kiss. Don't worry, I'm not really advocating that one. We can high-five. In modern times, that's just as good, right? Weeping, gift-giving, and vows of loyalty. Have you ever made a vow of loyalty to a friend? Hmm. No wonder we feel lonely. No wonder we're uncertain if people are going to stick around. We, we don't really understand how to express fidelity. Like getting you know, matching baseball jerseys isn't what I'm talking about. Season tickets together, right? We... Have you made a vow of loyalty to anyone besides your spouse? Now, David, David and Jonathan also pledged to protect each other's families after their own death, which, of course, David kept with Jonathan's, Jonathan's son. Now, Jesus is the greater David, the greater friend. Jesus' friend Lazarus, whom he called our friend Lazarus, in John 11, 11, experienced intense outpourings of emotions and gifts. Didn't he? If this is what it's like, here's Lazarus. What does he get from Jesus? Outpourings, intense outpourings of gifts and emotion. There's Jesus weeping. There's Jesus, I, I can't, my friend is suffering. I'm going to give him life again. That's a great gift, isn't it? Jesus and John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as it says in John 22, embraced freely. They didn't care. They didn't care who laughed at them. They didn't care if it was weird. I don't actually think it was that weird in their day their day. But they express love towards one another. I feel uncomfortable saying I love you to people, so you guys have probably heard me say it, I heart you. I heart you. Like a teenage girl or something. I'm afraid of expressing too much emotion. Because you guys have all seen me. I start and I just start weeping. I love you, man. You're the best. (laughs) Now, Jesus also made a covenant with John about taking care of his mom, didn't he? Just like Jonathan and David. Here, behold, you're Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. And John took care of Jesus' mother after he passed. Now, given the example of our Lord, again in 1 Corinthians sixteen seventeen, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is again the, this, this example I'm talking about. Here. The knitting together of souls. This is why it, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians six seventeen. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is why in 3 John 15 it says, the friends greet you. Greet the friends. Friends is what they called Christians commonly in, in, in the first century. Because they were friends with Jesus. They had this all, this commonality. Now, the second, uh, face, uh, the second example is a face-to-face encounter. So you have the knitting together of souls and a face-to-face encounter. This is used of Moses' relationship to God in the tabernacle. God spoke to Moses face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. Now this is the relationship that you have with Jesus. A knitting together of souls in a face-to-face relationship. Anytime you want, you go. Go and pray to God. And there he is. His spirit lives inside of you. You have him all the time. It's, it's a face-to-face relationship in which you're knitted together. So this is what friendship looks like. This is what we need in the world. Now, this is running a little long, but I, I found a fascinating thing when I, when I was doing this. He's our friend. The God of the universe is our friend. His soul is knit to our soul. 
and we have a face-to-face relationship with him, and that's what we need to take into the world. But Jesus also, in John 16, 7, says this, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. Now, it was not good that Adam were alone. It's not good that he was alone. And so God makes a helpmate for him. And here the Spirit is referred to as the helper. I don't think that's an accident. See, we like to think of, of you know, Jesus as our husband, which he is. He's the bride, we're the bride of Christ. But God fulfills both sides of every relationship. The Spirit is exactly what a helpmate should look like. Are you a wife who needs to know what a helpmate should look like? Do you need to encourage someone in, in, in the grace of God that's already in their life because you see them being a good helpmate? Here are some things that they might be doing. Okay, Some of these are specific to the Spirit, but some of these, like bringing order out of chaos, I have seen some of your homes when you were bachelors, and I've seen them now, and this is true. right? <laughs> Wives bring order out of chaos. They do, just like the Spirit. Some specific things to the Spirit, though. He's a teacher. He intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. He grieves with us. The Spirit alone knows the mind of God and shares it with us. The Holy Spirit is active in our salvation. He makes his dwelling in our hearts. He gives life, both at generation, regeneration, and resurrection. He brings order out of chaos. He unites, unites believers together, brings us before the face of God in prayer, points us towards Christ, illuminates our minds, and beautifies. Now, obviously, wives are not supposed to do all of those. Um, I, I respect my wife a great deal. I know that she's not in the mind of God to tell me the things that are there. I have a high view of her, but there's limits. But she does beautify, doesn't she? Look at me. I would have. I mean, I own ties and stuff now. I, like I have black socks that go with my shoes. That's not an accident. I was made for a relation. I was unfinished. I'm just a slob without her. But I mean, this this is what I'm talking about. You look around you, and the relationships you have teach you about God, and God teaches you about the relationships you have. God is the perfect husband, washing us with the word. He's also the perfect spouse in the other sense of being a wife, a helpmate. You are not alone. There is no need to feel overwhelmed in the ghetto that you're living in. Get out. Grab hold of Christ and through Christ and the Father and the Spirit and get out. Get out of the ghetto. God also brings us into the family of God. John 1, 11 through 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The table that we are at here is not like your Thanksgiving Day table. right? Have you guys ever had that family day uh, barbecue where they invited so-and-so, and it's awkward, and everyone knows it's awkward? Uh, there's actually family events I go to where people come in shifts because it's not pleasant when they're all there at the same time. Don't worry, I'm not one of them. <laughs> I, I, I wish I were, but I'm not. Okay, this, this is what I'm saying. I can make this joke and we all laugh because we get what families are like. Thanksgivings can be awkward. Family barbecues can be awkward. But the table that we're gathered around here is in the household of our God. Okay? And, and he's never awkward. He's at the head of the table. He, he's called us here. He is providing the food. He himself is the food. This is a different table. This is a different family. So the last point I'm going to make here is about that same family. 
it's not good that man was alone. And so he's given a helpmate. Even Jesus, it's not good that he's alone. He's given a helpmate too. So what is the church supposed to be? It's supposed to be a healthy and growing body. This is where we come to the conclusion in the ultimate point. Now you have relationship problems, a lot of them. Mostly your fault. You need to work on those. Turn to Christ and, 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 and just go through the scriptures. He's a doctor. He's a We've covered all that. Go to him and see what you need to fix. But th- there's one more important thing. Romans 12, 4 through 5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Colossians 2.19 Hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Now here's my point. We are a body of Christ, and we have a great deal to be grateful for. I think we're not nearly as grateful as we ought to be. But there is, in fact, something wrong, isn't there? We try to do the work of God, but, but it's, the arm isn't used to lifting stuff. The muscles are all there, but it's like a crippled man who, you know, whose hand is like this his whole life. And he goes and he has surgery, and by a miracle they open it up. And all he's got to do is go to physical therapy, and this hand will begin to work the way that it's supposed to. But he neglects it. And after all the money and the surgery and the pain, his hand actually closes up again. Now, we go through times where the hand's opened up and it gets working the way it ought to. But through neglect, through ghettos, through hiding from one another, through fear of man, the hand closes up again. We are a body of God with ligaments and joints, and, and, and we are underworked and overfed. Right? So we're like a 500-pound gorilla just sitting there. We do classes, we do sermons, we do calls, we, do, we gather together, we sing, we do all this stuff. We, are, we feed and feed and feed and feed, but the muscles are underworked. And why? We're afraid. We're hiding. And, and if we gather together to talk about how we're going to go into the world to do work, it's, we're not ever going to do it unless we start here and sustain it. Sustain it. Have people sinned against you? Have people let you down? Have people, do they have broken relationships with you? It's only through Christ. It's only through repentance. It's only through addressing the log and the speck that we're going to get anywhere, that the hand is going to start opening and closing the way it should so that it can go out in the world and grab onto a spade and do some work. The problem isn't out there. There are giants, but they're not a problem. Isolation? How can we ever be isolated? It's slain by Christ. The problem isn't the giants. The problem is we're hiding. We're afraid. And and like the Israelites who were going to go into the land, or unlike the Israelites who are going to go in the land. We know that there are giants, but we can't let that hold us back. Our God is bigger than the giants. Our God is bigger than our isolation. Our God is bigger than our failures and our weaknesses. And if we repent and believe, together we open the hand and work the hand, and it becomes something that functions the way that it should. Always. Not in flashes, but always. And this is my prayer for us.
God is good. God is faithful. He hasn't gone anywhere. We have five smooth stones. It's time to slay the dragons and get out of the ghetto. Let's pray.